So I've been thinking a little bit. Hope you have too. And uh, thinking big thoughts about life. And I guess my sum conclusion is life ain't easy. Have you had that conclusion? Have you thought that thought? Life ain't easy. It's been a refrain in my mind for the duration of this week. And yes, it's due to my reflections on this incredible psalm that we just heard read. You see, the psalm begins with a great doxology to God. But for what exactly? Immediately, I find myself being stunned in this day and age because what I'm expecting is not what I got. The answer was deliverance. God is being praised for being our refuge, our shelter, our protector, our sustainer, all of which implies that life ain't easy. See, the end game of this psalm is a bit startling for today because the end game is not happiness. Now, I need to qualify that. If by happiness it is meant a life set free from worldly cares, a life set free from, from bad experiences. Rather, happiness often being described today is, is experiential. It's circumstantial. It's happiness in my circumstances, happiness in my experience and my feelings and my emotions and my subjectivity. And, and this is the end game. It's become the end game. We begin to evaluate our work that way. Am I happy? Here. Imagine the Apostle Paul or Jesus Christ making that kind of an analysis of their job. Am I happy? Think about the Apostles, even the history of the church. Heck, for that matter, just think about your granddad and grandma. I'll never forget, I was going to tell the illustration later, I think I've said it before, but when my grandfather was in the 90s, I got the great idea, and it was a great idea, I must confess, to go and get a video and, and interview he and my grandmother, just interviewing them in my life. I was here a student at Yale and, and a, studying to be a historian. I thought, wow, this is going to be a good book one day. I want some data. And so I'm, I'm interviewing them and going through their life, just what are the great events of your life? What are the things that have happened? What has startled you? What is your greatest mistake? What would you do over? On and on and on we went. It was just an exhilarating conversation. But I'll never forget when I asked him about being happy. I mean, this stuck out to me even then before the sermon, I promise. But I remember saying, well, tell me, were you happy as a child? Were you happy? And the look he gave me was absolute confusion. I'm not lying. He looked at me and he just kind of, you could tell, I jolted him. He didn't, he didn't know how to answer the question. The fact is, he had never considered it, ever. That is startling. He said, well, I mean, I've had a good life, you know, and he went on like that. There were some hard times. I got my, how many kids? Four kids. They all got a job, check off, got a good wife, we worked hard, check it off, went through the Great Depression, we made it, 
check it off. <laughs> That's the way he, he approached the whole thing. I pushed harder. I went, well, I'll never, but what would you do to be happy? <laughs> As if he needed more. I was clueless about that man's way of life. He was clueless about my way of life. We were disconnecting. I read the scripture and I begin to wonder if my grandfather was right and I'm wrong. And of course, I am thinking of a generation question as well. You see, the end game of this psalm is not happiness. If by happiness it is meant a life set free from worldly cares, filled with positive experiences, God is praised not for being a happiness coach. He's being praised for consistently delivering them from trouble. Trouble is all over this psalm. And it's the predicate for the praise that God gives to God, which again is jolting our universe, I suspect. Because life ain't easy. It's a refrain that has been on my mind all week, and I hope and pray God will exposit that refrain to the praise and the glory of God. I must confess that I was wondering why this song or this, this phrase was in my head. I just kept saying it, life ain't easy, and I kept thinking there'd be a song. There must have been a song, and so I Googled it, and well, there was no song that I grew up with called Life Ain't Easy, but there was a rap song. And it goes like this. From the outside looking in, it seems that I'm fine, but they don't know nothing about the everyday grind. Time is money, money is time. They tell me great, get there I at five, but I'm running behind. If life, is life a joke? Then I'm waiting for the pun. You all about the beef, but me, I'm about the bun, the bread. Now, I would not recommend this, this, uh, this rap, uh, this hip hop. I changed a few words. <laughs> but it really speaks, I think, to the soul in the genre of the soul. Because every day is a grind. Most of life, it seems like we're running behind. That is to say that we're not quite finished. We have more to do. The moments of complete happiness from a circumstance of it's done, it's accomplished, or about three or four times in your whole life, maybe. And so I hope this psalm speaks to your heart, and I say that with the most pastoral love I know. Because I honestly discern a problem in us. A problem that's setting us up for all kinds of expectations for our youth and their expectations in manners that would honestly miss the whole point of this life. And the kind of fulfillment, the purposeful fulfillment that God would give to us unto the kind that Perhaps our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ must have felt about his life if everybody, if anybody had asked him, and certainly throughout church history. Let's pray as we go to this passage. So Lord, speak into our souls. We pray with the wrap of your scripture. 
Help us, Lord, to feel it and to reform ourselves to it and to be transformed by it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you're looking for a, a bit of an outline, um, it's not going to be three points. It's going to be five because it's what the text gives us and what they are is it begins with doxology. I will bless the Lord at all times. There's a predicate for that. And that predicate or that context is God's deliverance. There's an invitation, a very interesting invitation, a dare almost, taste, just taste and see. And then there's the how-to. How do we taste? What do we do? By making God our boast or the fear of the Lord. And then, of course, it ends with a promise, God always, always answers the humble in heart. And so let's begin with doxology. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I will at all times. Did you hear that? This is a non-circumstantial prayer. This is a prayer of conviction. A prayer that assumes a, a presupposition about who I am, who God is, what life is about, how I fit into that journey of life. Oh, so desperately do we need the narrative. The narrative of Holy Scripture, the narrative of our theological worldview to inform what we praise and when we praise. I will at all times, a resolve, a fixed conviction. And what is that? Just assuming for a moment the scriptures, the whole of it, we know that after the fall, utopian is gone. And yet we're in a journey to utopia. It's an utopian dream. The whole of scripture begins in chapter 2. It ends in chapter 3, part A, and it picks up again with a promise, part B, that it will come, but oh, it will come only after. Only after. Only after. Many troubles. Thorns, thistles, pain and childbirth, disruptions, uphill all the way, wilderness. You go through redemptive history, the promise is always there. The utopian dream is always there. The promised land is always there, but it's always, always, always not yet. Christ enters the scene. You think it's yet. And then he tells his people, there will be trouble. The last days are going to be filled with trouble. In fact, you could read it, they're going to be escalated with trouble. In fact, it's the very definition of the disciple of Christ that they take up their cross and follow after me. It's a vow of poverty that you take, Christian. Life ain't going to be easy. The psalmist seemed to know that. I will at all times. It's interesting, later on, what man is there who desires life, who loves many days like he may see good? The answer is, Someone who will stay the course. Someone who will not slander God for their troubles. Someone who will continually do good and fulfill his or her purpose in this life. 
It's a very radical worldview, to be sure. This sets the stage, then, for the rest of this psalm, this incredible doxology of conviction and what occasions his praise. Such doxology and praise, then, of course, is begging the question, what exactly has happened or is happening that moves David to such praise and adoration of God? To state it different here, the transaction, what is it about life that prepares us to praise God? Or what is it about God that we are to praise him for? Life ain't easy. Psalms 34, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from my fears. Again, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. This psalm is a psalm of deliverance, they call it. It's a song of deliverance. And again, in verse 17, when, and notice it starts out when, not if, but when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. From beginning to end, this psalm is all about troubles, afflictions, hardships. And it's not posited as if, but when. It's part of the deal. It's part of the journey. The righteous will cry for help. It's not the righteous will what? Try to make themselves happy. They cry for help. David's deliverance specifically here, referenced in chapter 34, wants us to go back to 1 Samuel chapter um, 21, verses 1 through 15. It's a context of his being delivered from Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, uh, there's lots of scholarly debate about Abimelech. Abimelech could be the name of a specific king in Goth, the same as Achish, uh, as said about that king. But I think the more prominent uh, commentary and research shows him that, that Abimelech is, is like to, to Achish, that, that other name from Abimelech there, as in say Pharaoh is or Caesar is to many Pharaohs or to many Caesars. It's hard to know for sure. We know for sure that there was a specific instance when the Pharaoh of his day or the Caesar of his day was, was, was searching out for him, and he was in dire troubles. And so therefore, we know that he cried out to the Lord, but he did so in a very curious way, a way that is often, uh, again, debated by those who, who comment on this. Was it a sinful context of his brokenness that made him fake like he was insane? He literally faked insanity not a very noble way to fight, I guess. But he literally faked insanity that he might uh, be, be you know, relieved of his trouble with Abimelech. It's hard to say. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the context is clearly that out of this experience, remembering the great deliverance of God from his distress, he writes a song, a song of this psalm, 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, this psalm will conclude. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. 
He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. The message you see is universal. Life ain't easy. Perhaps one of the great dangers, again, we face as Christians is this naive, blind, almost utopian expectation that secular humanism has prompted us to believe that somehow if we just work hard enough, somehow by our great ingenuity and learning, somehow the beauty and the greatness of humanity being human will bring about a life of happiness. And that secular message has so transformed our culture in the last hundred years, even maybe shorter, that now we begin to judge our performance and even the worthiness of our work by the virtues of happiness, circumstantial, experiential, event, event, event-based happiness. Good has been replaced with happiness. Are you happy? Just think about how you would answer that question. Are you happy? I'm hearing that question more and more. Just this month, at least three situations, one very critical, revolved around that question. A confession to me, Pastor, I'm just so unhappy. Now, how do you respond to that? That's coming out of the, the study of my office. Three times. In, very seri- in one in very serious situation. And I'm, I'm puzzled what to say. Is it that you're supposed to leave the circumstance because that's making you happy? Unhappy, I mean? I mean, that would be kind of the, 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 the humanist answer. Well, change your circumstances. What would that mean? What kind of life change would that mean? Just think about it. I won't go into the details. It could mean a change of job. It could mean a change of spouse. It could mean a change of where you live, where you move. Are you happy? I'm not happy. Mmm, George is on my mind. There it goes. Are you happy? No, I'm not really happy. Well, I need to join this. I need to do that. No, what's missing here? I pray God some of you know. Where is God? Where is the grand question of my life and its purpose in life? Is there a purposefulness in my life that transcends immediate gratification, circumstantial happiness? Is there something bigger than my life than just being happy? Gosh, I know I am just, golly, I feel like the whole world's turning upside down in this sermon. Again, I wonder if I'd ask my grandfather, are you happy during the Depression? Or when he had to leave his farm in Texas to go work at the delivery stable because there was a drought? Was he happy? Should he just leave the farm altogether? How would you know? Does it make me happy? <laughs> What's my purpose in life? To be happy. There's something going on here. And so, how does the psalmist respond? to the circumstance of, in this case, prompted by Abimelech and his great persecution. 
Well, oh, taste and see, you'll say, that the Lord is good. Really, Paul? Doesn't look too good to you, man. All you're doing is running away from kings all your life. Why? Blessed. Blessed. Now, some people have tried to actually turn that word into happy in other translations. Not here, but in other Psalms. I think that's dangerous. I think maybe that could have been a good word 80 years ago. But to use the word happy now, I don't think speaks to our culture's use of that word. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in God. The Lord, notice what he does and doesn't do. He redeems the life of his servant. That's not the same. That's like purchases it back and gives it back to its, its purpose, if you will. He redeems the life. He redeems the circumstances. He makes them worthy. He makes them count. It was worth it to suffer, if you ask Jesus Christ. Because of redemption, you see. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None, those, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. In other words, they'll be vindicated. Interestingly, it's from the context of David's deliverance in 1 Samuel, this idea of God as refuge, God the deliverer, is so prominent in 2 Samuel. Let me just read a few of them. My God, in 2 Samuel 22, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you shall save me from violence. He goes on, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is my shield and for all those who take refuge in him. This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. Notice how he made his way. Not what else he could have said, but blameless. Do you hear the purposefulness in that? Do you hear something deeper than circumstantial, experiential than that? What is your purpose in life? I mean, what are you on earth for? How much of my joy, my peace, my contentment is related to fulfilling that rather than what we now code word for happiness, in the absence of struggle. The idea of God as refuge is so prominent through the Psalms. This is one of many, many, many. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice, says the psalmist, over and over again. I won't read all of them here. What does it mean that God is our refuge? It means pretty much in the English what I studied in the Hebrew. A good translation would be a, a shelter, a protection from danger or distress, a place that provides protection, a refuge. It's always known as protection. It's always in the context of trouble that refuge then is used. The Encarta World Dictionary kind of flowers it up a little bit, and I think it's helpful. A sheltered or protected state safe from something threatening, harmful, or unpleasant a place of sometimes a person offering protection or safe harbor from something. But it's always from something. The word refuge can't involve nothing but something that's a trouble, that's an affliction, that's a trial that ain't easy. This is where we find ourselves post-fall, pre-consummation. 
We're in between. And there's a journey, purposeful and intentionally redemptive in nature. Paul will say, redeem the days, for the days are evil. What he means by that is not that they're bad in the sense that they're evil, evil necessarily, but they're evil in the sense that they're troubled. These are troubled days. Redeem those days. Make them count. That is a total different worldview than a world a worldview that says, my purpose in life is to be happy. How do we take refuge in the Lord? Number four, notice then the great emphasis throughout this psalm on the fear of the Lord. It's one of the most prominent themes in this scripture, and clearly, to be sure, it's probably the most prominent theme in the whole of scripture itself as to what it means to properly walk with God. How do we relate to God? How do we walk with God? For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom in the Proverbs is a salvation wisdom. It's the beginning of everything, this fear of the Lord. So in response to the invitation, taste and see, the answer is given. Oh, fear the Lord. That's how you're going to taste it. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Throughout this passage in redemptive history, again, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's how this, this passage will, will conclude. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? One of the best things you can do in Scripture is to try to see how other sentences or other passages explain this passage, and particularly in this very context of Psalms 34. And if you look through Psalms 34, there's one other prominent theme. That the fear of the Lord is shown to be synonymous with boasting in the Lord. He says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. There is so much in this phrase, the fear of the Lord, or to boast in the Lord, to make the Lord our boast. But there's a two sides to the corn. I think we all know what boasting is. It's, it's something we brag about. We can boast in ourselves, and we're bragging about ourselves. We can boast in our children, we're bragging of them. We can boast in our parents. We can boast, boast, boast. Boast is bragging. What's underneath bragging? Boast is a kind of, of praiseworthiness. Boast is a kind of putting confidence in something. It's, where I, it's what I believe in. It's what I put my confidence in. I boast in it. I depend on it kind of boast my soul makes its boast but isn't boasting very natural I mean isn't it true that all of us boast every one of us boast it's just what you boast in that's the question but boast boasting itself is incredibly human it's a human thing to do we are made to boast and it's natural but it's very unnatural to boast in God. That's why the phrase says, let the humble hear. My soul makes its boast in the Lord, let the humble hear. Why? Why is it so uncomfortable boasting in the Lord? Because it's the one thing in this world, now get this, it's the one thing in this world that I can't manipulate, that I can't control. 
I mean, just about everything else we could boast in, we boast in those things which we have some ultimate ability to influence. Whether it's what we vote for, whether it's what we influence by our personality, whether it's what, whatever it is. If, if I'm boasting in my wealth, then I can go work harder for my wealth. If I'm boasting for my prestige, I can boast more in my prestige. I can go out and, and smooth and, and network. Depending on your person, your gifts, your personality, whatever your, your assets are, we find ourselves boasting. If I boast in my children, well, I have a lot of control over my children, don't I? At least till they leave for college and then it's gone. Right, Dylan? Yeah, it's gone. Dylan's my friend and he's out of the house. No, it's true. Parents like to boast in children. There was a day when my children liked to boast in me. I think they were about three years old at the time and that's when it stopped, but, but they could manipulate me. Believe me, they could. Just show me some cry, just show me some weakness, show me you're unhappy and man, I'm just moving about the town, doing everything I can do for that little kid. Think about how boasting if it doesn't deceive you a little bit, it's not really so confident after all. It's, it's confidence in ourselves, unless it's in the Lord. All boasting is really self-boasting, even if under the guise of boasting in my, or my, or my, whatever. But boasting comes back to humanism. This incredibly naive idea that I can solve my problems. And lacking the humility that looks not for me performing and solving my problems through my work or whatever, where I live, what kind of house I live, etc. but by being redeemed by God himself. And so that leads us to the promise. And those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He gives an illustration, and I appreciate this illustration now in my age, when I look back at my years of my youth, especially, I was like a young lion, really. Man, I could roar. I was naively putting incredible confidence. I could not, I used to hear people talk about how short life is, and I would just laugh and say, what are you talking about? It took me forever to get to the age of 12. It's going to take me forever to die. And then somewhere there's a, there's a turning point. There's a tipping point in your life. Every one of you need to hear this. Some of you know it and you could preach it better than I. Some of you don't know it. And somewhere it's in that tipping point. That tipping point somewhere around, I don't know, 50-ish maybe. But somewhere it happens, oh my God, life is short. I can't control it. It's out of control. It's moving faster than lightning. I'm going to die. I'm really going to die. I mean, not to be humorous about it. It's a serious thing. Often it happens when your parents die. And all of a sudden it dawns upon you, I'm it. <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the next to go. The tipping point. And this, this illustration is powerful. The young lions, they roar. They're, there's confidence. They can, they can do anything. Honestly, I can remember those days. I could do anything. I could outthink, outrun. That's not true, but I thought that sometimes. I could do anything. There was no more. I could be in perfect shape. I could run across campus if I can't catch the, 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 uh, the bus. I used to do that in Georgia. It was a big campus. I go, well, how am I going to catch the bus? 
I can run full steam ahead and be on the other side of the campus and not even be breathing hard. And that's what I would do. Gosh, I can't even walk half that distance and not be choking to death. I mean, there is this amazing illustration. He says, don't be like this young lion that thinks you can do anything and thinks you can do anything. Listen to this, young ones. I know that sounds pejorative. What do I call people today? What is the, what is the PT word for this? PC? I don't know. Youth? I don't know. Those who are under the tipping point. So if you're under 50, you're it. How about that? Made some of you feel pretty good. You're still young. But whoever you need to hear, whoever needs to hear, but honestly, all of us need to hear. We're all like this young line in some degree or another. Maybe we're in our golden years and we have put our confidence in how our kids are doing, how our wealth is doing, how our experiences are doing, how's my health doing. Oh, gosh, health. That comes back to haunt you. Something you never worried about now haunts you, filled with trouble. The young lions, I'm actually going to finish this verse. The young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The promise is clear. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Verse 6, the poor man cried out. Notice the poor man. It's always the humble man. It's the poor man or person. It's the poor person and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. When the righteous cry for help, and they will cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. How many times was that? That was in one psalm. So debate as to whether, again, David's tactic, faking insanity, was a sin of not regarding and trusting God or not. It's curious. Either he did so while sinning, says, say, Spurgeon, or he did so while being self-reliant in his deception, says Calvin. But it must have been in a very confused and broken place of life that David went to such an ridiculous extreme acting insane, losing his honor as the chosen king of God in order to save his life from Abimelech. And that's why you hear this language, the poor man. However much his prayer was entangled with his self-confidence and self-boasting, even if to put him in such a ridiculous place, that's where boasting gets you, by the way, insanity, even to the point where it got him to this level of poverty, the Lord heard. Do you hear something here, people? You know, God is no respecter of persons. He's no respecter of circumstances. When we find ourselves low, he comes down. He does every time. That's the promise. If you would just humble yourself, boasting in him, you're going to be my refuge. You're going to be my redeemer. You're going to give me the purpose and meaning of my life and fulfillment that I need. And you're going to be sufficient for me to trust in. When we get to that place, God have mercy. 
I know in my own life there have been a few moments like that where they've been really, 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 really low. And I notice when those things happen, the only word I can get out of my mouth is mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. At three in the morning, have mercy. And life changes when that happens. I know I'm speaking to someone here. I know I may be speaking to many of you. Have mercy. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and find gladness. There's an incredible invitation here. This amazing invitation. A kind of invitation that wants us to hear something that we don't want to hear. A kind of dare. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't you love that? It's, it's just this kind of, I hear you out there. I know what you're thinking, says the Lord. Can I really do this? Can I really give my life to Christ? I've been sitting on the fence for years. I've been coming to church dutifully for years. Can I really give my life to Christ? Can I really give my purpose to Christ? Can I give my days to Christ? Can I give my circumstances to Christ? Can I let go? Can I give to Christ my life? We need all of us to have these moments where we step back, get up into the stratosphere, look down at our lives and say, what is my life all about? Is it happiness or is it redemption? You got a choice. There's amazing how this is going to get transacted and there's a hint for you in, the church, in this passage. The hint is this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. I've read this, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Now, did you hear what was next? I've saved it for last. Because he says, quote, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. You ever heard that phrase before? Anybody know where that's quoted in scripture? John 19. Thank you. John 19. John 19 is is John's thinking about the meaning and the purpose of Jesus Christ's life. It's the big picture moment. And what does he turn to? He turns to Psalms 34. And he remembers how it was said that redemption comes out of trouble. And he uses this quote, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. That is to say, he will suffer, but he will not be destroyed. Christ suffered, but he was not to be destroyed. You, Christian, will suffer. But your redemption is that you will be raised up. Again, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Hold it, pastor. Didn't you just say that you have to be humble to recognize that you're not righteous? Yep. Didn't you just say that it takes that moment where you're no longer confident in yourself, your own righteousness, your own behaviors, your own performance? Yep that I don't get it. How can I, the righteous person that's not really righteous, make this prayer? Well, the hint is right there in the next verse. Christ's righteousness, the psalmist in the incredible foreshadowing of God's spirit, giving him these words, foreshadow today when your righteousness would be in the righteousness of Christ accepted. 
to humble yourself, to ask God to be your redeemer, the answer being Jesus Christ, giving your life to him and your purposes to him, being saved. It's a hearkening back to chapter 3 of Genesis. The idea that there would be this serpent who would, who would do great harsh things to the Messiah, the one born of the seed of the woman, but he would not be crushed. He would not be destroyed. And so the take home, I hope, is clear. There's a great uh, hymn the church is one foundation. Uh, it's, it's a hymn that, that was written in the 1860s by Samuel John Stone, and it's a hymn that describes the church's relationship to the foundation, not of circumstances, not of other boasts or confidence, but of Jesus Christ. And the church is here represented as this collective Christian fellowship of all places and of all time on earth. It's meant to be universal church as it is wholly united by a Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a credible hymn. Often when I sing it, start crying. But the punch of the hymn is in its every other stanza. The security and the hope of the church is clearly contextualized within present hardships and struggles. I mean, I won't go through the parts of the hymn that reminds us of our union with Christ and the and the holiness and the purpose of the church marching through history in this redeeming fashion. But interspersed in this march through history are, are stanzas like this. Yet she on earth hath union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those who rest as one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly on high may dwell with thee. That's the hope. In the context of, that's how it ends. But here's what it came through. Though with scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, schisms rent asunder and heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of wars, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. God, come. But then you say, not until I've suffered what I was supposed to suffer. Not until I have done, until I have done what I was supposed to have done. I encourage you, if you're not a believer, to turn it over, to boast in Christ. Receive him as your Savior right now, today. I encourage you, if you're a Christian, to change your worldview if it needs to be changed. From happiness to purposeful, redemptive living. To see your life differently, to find contentment and fulfillment, not in the circumstances of your job or in your family or in your place of living or in all these other things that come up but to find it in the purposefulness of your life. What is your life on earth to do? And find that inner blessed state of mind that comes when you know you're doing it, even though it, you know what sometimes. I encourage you to be sanctified in this way.
May God be pleased. Amen.